See, there are people out there who don't seem to make much of a connection between their relationship to Christ and their personal value system. But as followers of Christ, we should not just recognize evil or avoid evil. We should actively oppose those evils that destroy people's lives and hurt the cause of Christ. In the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul introduces a problem into the church. The Corinthians have prob- uh, proudly attached themselves to certain leaders, and this began to cause division within the church, which undermined the unity of the church. In chapters 5 and 6, Paul calls attention to two other problems plaguing the church, immorality and lawsuits, and while there'll be more on that next week. Our text today is, is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's not actually about the immorality of one church member. It's much bigger than that. It's, it's as much as it is about the pride and the passivity of the entire church in response to this one member. We might like take a look at chapters 1 to 6 of 1 Corinthians this way. The first four chapters is what we would call in-house sins. Sins that are being dealt within the walls of the church itself. Paul has been dealing with pride and its consequences within the Corinthian assembly. However, chapter 5 and 6 begins to introduce a new section of the letter to us regarding the sins of the believers being practiced in public while the rest of the world actually looks at the church in shock. Now, in our society over the past few years, there have been several mindsets that have seeped into the church which I actually believe are contrary to the Scriptures. Our society calls us to be open-minded to all things. I don't have a problem being open-minded. I just don't want to call open-minded accepting things that God forbids. By being open-minded, our culture denies that there's any absolute truth. But as believers, we know that there are some absolutes in this world. And this mindset has now affected the church to the point where we don't want to address things like sin as sin. But we tiptoe around issues because we're afraid of hurting feelings and appealing to close-minded or intolerant, or we were, sorry, we're afraid of appearing to be close-minded or intolerant. But there's some ground which we have to actually stand firmly on. There are some issues that may not be politically correct, but actually need to be addressed. Our culture tells us to be tolerant. We are, to, we, we, we are expected in the society in which we live to accept and be tolerant of the things that others choose to do with their life. And again, I don't have a problem with being tolerant and patient. But again, I don't think that tolerance means that we allow sin and immorality to run rampant without speaking up for the truth, specifically within the church. And finally, and interesting enough, our our culture teaches us that what I do is my business and nobody else's. Again, I have no problem respecting people's privacy. But on the other hand, the Bible teaches that the church is a body and the idea of privacy has gone to an extreme now where we feel that we can, you know, whatever we do is strictly our own business. But as we look at Scripture, Scripture is clear that what we do is not just our business. It's also God's business. And to some extent, it's the church's business. 
So in chapter 5, we find Paul dealing with a couple of problems in the church. Greek cities like Corinth and others had a very casual uh, acceptance of sex outside of the marriage relationship. In Corinth, for instance, there was a temple of Aphrodite. It was devoted to the worship of sex. And so it was common for Christians, obviously, to be tempted this this area, especially in Corinth. And many of them had indulged themselves in constant sexual liaisons before becoming Christians. And it was difficult for them to break those habits. Today in Winnipeg, we are no different than the Corinthian church. The Christians in Corinth were expected to meet the same demand for chastity and purity that we're called upon in the scriptures to meet today. And and God has not changed. The world has not changed. And as we read this passage, we can see that we're actually dealing with a very up-to-date problem. And it's assumed that as the letters that Paul wrote arrived to the churches, they would read them when they met together for worship. So you have to imagine that. Paul writes the letter to 1 Corinthians. People of the church come together. They unravel it and they begin to read it. And they, they would have loved the beginning and, and the ends of Paul's letters, especially where he would greet certain people by name. Maybe you're waiting to hear your name mentioned. And those people that were greeted had to feel a sense of joy or pride that they were personally greeted by their hero. And here in the middle of this letter now, you got to imagine it's being read to the church. And Paul greets somebody personally, but this is not the type of greeting that somebody would want. And we pick it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 1, and it says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? Paul is shocked that sexual immorality is taking place in the church. Now remember, sexual immorality refers to any kind of sexual activity that's outside the context God created for it. The marriage between one man and one woman. Now the shocker is is that Paul actually names what's going on so that everyone is clear on what he's talking about. Paul's word indicates that this is not just a a one-night fling because he says that a man is sleeping with his father's wife. In other words, the sin is still going on. Whether or not the father is alive is unclear. Whether this man is married to his father's wife is, is not clearly indicated. Nor are we told that the woman is a professing Christian. What we do know is that Paul doesn't instruct them to cast the woman out, but only the man. So it's very clear that this man is acting immorally with his father's wife. And this was condemned in the moral laws of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 27.20 said, Cursed is anybody who sleeps with his father's wife, for he dishonors his father's bed. It was also forbidden by the apostles in Acts 15 and Acts 29. You know, and as permissive as the Corinthian culture was, it was actually frowned upon by the ancient Greek and Roman culture. It was actually considered taboo by them. And as Paul says, that even pagans don't even tolerate this behavior that's going on in the church. So not only does God disapprove, but so does non-Christian society. 
And the church would be dismissed now as disgusting, the kind of place that no decent person should be seen, and that is a problem. We have a huge problem. But they also have another problem. The church is actually proud that they have this kind of behavior in their midst. You know, they, they put it on their websites, uh, uh, on all their publicity. You know, we're a tolerant church. We're a non-judgmental church. Look, anything goes here. Look, we even have a man who sleeps with his stepmother. You know, come, join us. We're great. And so the two problems they had was what the man was doing, but also their boasting. And together, they're massive. And the Corinthians in this church, they just don't see it. Paul now shows us what the true attitude of the church ought to be when immorality rears its head. It ought to be grief. He actually asked, shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning? There there, there ought to be shock and hurt, not only for the persons involved in this, but also for the church and for the Lord himself. That the cause of Christ is being damaged in the eyes of the community because of these deeds being acted out. And the reason that this was so hurtful in Corinth was because the church, the church was permitting it to happen. You know, some of you could be sitting there watching and just thinking, well, you know, we shouldn't judge people. Paul is clear that this individual is breaking the commands of Scripture. This is not an arbitrary thing. And so he continues in his writing. He says this, For my part, Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As the one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. You can't imagine this is going on in the church They're reading this out loud. The man is probably there, and he's hearing what's going on. And here's Paul's solution to the problem. And I warn you today, you might not like what I have to say. In a nutshell, the church is to expel this man. Paul actually uses the term handing him over to Satan. Now, again, we know that there are always two kingdoms at work in life. There's the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God, and they intermingle, and they're, they're working all the time. They're in forces all the time, everywhere, and you, you cannot separate them by sharp lines of demarcation from the standpoint of geography or, or personality. Nevertheless, though, they are sharply separated in their philosophy. And what Paul is saying here is that the church is to, to put this guy back. Back into the realm, so to speak, of Satan's control. In other words, he's never really left it. The church is to to think of him as back under that control. And publicly, the church is to recognize that this guy doesn't represent Christ. Think about that. This is a hard teaching. And these are hard words because most of the time, you know, when we read this, we we have a different perspective and we want people to come to the church. We want people to join us, right? We want people to draw in. But this goes against the grain for us. And what Paul's talking about here is uh, practicing what is commonly known as church discipline. 
And Paul's not talking about the behavior of non-believers, about people living outside of the church. He's dealing with people who identify, who call themselves Christians, but their lives being lived out is literally contrary to all the scriptural teachings. The idea of church discipline has, by many, been called the forgotten doctrine of the church, and rightly so. You know, even as a church, we fear the idea of disfellowshipping a believer because we're afraid that we might hurt their feelings or, you know, uh, uh, that when they leave the church that they'll leave, they'll take their money with them or they'll take other people with them. And lots of churches actually choose to ignore church discipline because of uh, the issue of how to exercise church discipline in the 21st century actually now has become very complicated compared to the first century. But we have to ask ourselves a question. How do we become the church that reaches out to the lost souls, but at the same time holds believers to high standards? Is it really loving to a brother or a sister who's engaged in sinful patterns of behavior to pretend that you don't know, that you just turn a blind eye or you just tolerate them? Or in this case, in the Corinthian church, celebrate them. I think these are questions that we have to address if we're going to be a healthy body of Christ, a healthy church. And I think there are a few things that we have to keep in mind. That the goal of church discipline is not separation. Rather, the goal of church discipline is repentance. Removing somebody from a fellowship or participation is not an action that is actually easy to take or that we should actually enjoy taking on somebody, but rather is one that hurts. It hurts everyone involved because we care. Sin is to be grieved over, not celebrated. We should pray that we see God, that we should pray that we see sin as God sees it. And not primarily the sin we see in other people, but also the sin we see in ourselves. So church discipline in itself needs to be redemptive. It's not punitive. It's, the goal is always to help a fallen brother or sister into conviction, into repentance, to change from where they were going into a new direction. And I don't believe Paul's purpose was to simply come in and make a statement and pursue some hidden agenda or to overly be zealous against some sort of sin. His goal was for the person to repent and in the end be saved and live the life that he was destined to live. I have to be honest, we don't like to execute church discipline because we would rather make justification for sin rather than having to deal with it. And I think we have to understand that dealing with and confronting sin is not a lack of love, but rather is actually a display of love. If you love your children, for example, you're going to discipline them when they do wrong. Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those he loves. And as a church, we are not showing love when we tolerate sin within the body. But the interesting thing is that there's a process to follow. Matthew 18. Jesus gives his disciples instructions uh, as to uh, what they were to instruct the churches so that discipline 
would be an ongoing practice throughout the history of the church. More than any other text, Matthew 18 spells out the process of discipline and Paul's words in 1 Corinthians closely parallel those words. Matthew 18, Jesus said this. He said, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would, a pagan or a tax collector. Because truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if the two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. So this morning, let's consider some of the key elements of church discipline as taught by Jesus and reiterated by Paul in our text. First, church discipline is a process. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul actually speaks of the final step of discipline. Matthew 18 is very clear in the full process of church discipline from private conversation of, of a single saint to the collective expulsion from the congregation by the whole church. And the reason Paul deals only with the last step in this process in 1 Corinthians 5 is the willful rebellion of the sinner is evident and his sin has already become public knowledge in the community and so discipline must be as public as the sin. And secondly, church discipline is the obligation of the whole church. Paul speaks of the discipline process taking place when he says, when you're assembled. Jesus instructed that the matter be told to the church. In Matthew's text, it's assumed that this will happen after this wayward individual has been privately confronted. So in the case of the man in Corinth, the matter has already become a matter of public knowledge. So constant Consequently, the correction must be as public as the sin. And so we see in the scriptures that the final step of discipline is, is taken by the entire church when they've assembled. This is a hard teaching. And yet when we see that, Jesus promises his special presence when such a gathering is assembled for discipline. He says, again, I, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I'm there in their midst. I just need to say this, that this little passage, these two verses that I've just read, are so misapplied today in the church either from word faith or when people are just referring to when we gather together, we're just two or three saints gathered together. In context, that's not what it's talking about. The context, the gathering of two or three people is sufficient for Jesus to be specifically present in this most difficult duty, this most difficult time. It has nothing to do with how small your prayer meeting or worship service is. It has everything to do with the heartache and the pain and the relational discomfort of church discipline. That in that midst, in that pain, that Jesus is still there. 
Third, church discipline involves the local church. It has implications for the community at large. And in this case, Paul calls for the whole church to be involved, and it's a very difficult assignment. Paul strongly implies that church discipline should be exercised more generally by all the churches. Now in our day, today, in easy mobility in a church on every corner, someone who's under discipline in one church will usually find it easy to uh, attempt to attend somewhere else and get involved somewhere else. One gets confronted, somebody gets mad, they go elsewhere and nobody knows what they've left behind and people can go off and try to start something new without having to deal with stuff that got them into trouble in the first place. And usually what they do is they get confronted in one church and they bring what they've left behind into the next church. And it repeats itself all over again. You wonder whether or not we as pastors, and this is me thinking, this has nothing to do with the text, this is just my thoughts, whether or not we as pastors... When we go into a discipline scenario and somebody ends up leaving, that we should notify the churches that they're going to. Just saying. Fourthly, church discipline is to be done in the name and the power of Jesus. The church acts on behalf of Jesus, carrying out the discipline. This is why Jesus' presence is promised. This is why Paul, speaking of acting in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the power of the Lord Jesus, We act on God's behalf. And thus when we act, God acts as well. Fifthly, church discipline is only for those who profess to be saints. Think about that. Paul makes it very clear in verses 12 and 13 that that church discipline is for those who are inside the church. Not for those who are outside the church. Jesus makes the same point in Matthew 18, 15, where he begins, if your brother sins. The final outcome of church discipline is that a believer who willfully remains in sin is treated, as Jesus would say, as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, association with this believer under discipline is actually to be terminated. But yet, he's still to be regarded as a brother and not as an enemy. And finally, when we look at church discipline, we have to see that it's not a final judgment which condemns one to hell. But the whole idea of church discipline is the goal of restoration. And Paul makes it very clear that turning one over to Satan in church discipline is not a final act of condemnation, but it's an action taken with the hope, with the hope that the person would repent. And Paul goes on in Corinthians. He begins to explain his reasons by saying, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what did Paul do? He shifts to talking about the Passover, that the night that God rescued the people from Israel from slavery in Egypt. 
And this imagery is clearly borrowed from the Feast of the Passover when the Jews, when they would remember their deliverance from Egypt, would take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it over the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over. And so the people were slaves and God wanted them to go free. Pharaoh did not. And so God changes Pharaoh's mind and God wins the contest. And God told the Israelites, look, be prepared. You're going to have to leave in a hurry. So you're going to make your bread, but don't put any yeast in it. And there wouldn't be time for this bread to rise. And they were to remember that night forever. And once a year, they were to eat the lamb and to remember that God provided a lamb to die in their place. Once a year, they were to eat unleavened bread to remember how fast God had got them out. And Paul says that rescue from Egypt is a symbol of God's rescue of us. Jesus is that true lamb of God who died in our place. But yeast is consistently used throughout Scripture as a symbol of sin or evil. And just as the Jews had to get rid of all the yeast during Passover, we as the church have to get rid of the sin in our lives. And that's the way we celebrate God's great rescue. But the church in Corinth was allowing the yeast to remain, so to speak. They didn't get rid of it. And so that yeast, that sin, was actually spreading until the whole church was affected. And the whole church now was sick or compromised. We still may not completely get the idea of not letting a batch of dough become spoiled by a little bit of yeast. But most of us watching have had some experience whereby somewhere amongst our family or friends, somebody's had cancer. And we really don't want a doctor who says, well, it's just a little tumor. It'll be a long time before it spreads to anything really important. Or we really don't want a doctor saying to us, we should all try to be a little bit more understanding of tumors. After all, they're cells too. The fact of the matter is surgery might be painful, especially the process after, the healing but it's necessary for the health of our body that if there's a malignancy in there, it needs to be removed. Paul continues. He writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all. Meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or adulterers. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, listen to what he's saying, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an adulterer, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. Now we know that this is not the first letter that Paul's written to the Corinthians. But here Paul is clear about us associating with people who identify themselves as believers but are living a lifestyle contrary to Scripture. He's not talking about people who have temporary lapses into sin. But he's talking to people whose identity is actually marked by one or more of these behaviors. That they could actually be labeled, that's a greedy person, that's a drunk. That that, that these people are engaged in a habitual, systemic, unrepentant, sinful behavior. Paul is addressing the Christian who gets unapologetically drunk and is unrepentant. Or the one who slanders others and gossips about others. The one who's ripping people off 
in their businesses. And it's interesting, Paul says, don't even eat with them. Today, this would probably translate, don't invite this person into your home for a small group Bible study or for a meal. Don't even accept an invitation for a meal with them. Which is quite interesting because it's all about relationship. But I think we keep forgetting that these people are unapologetically living their lives contrary to what God has required of us. And so Paul concludes his section. He says, What business of it is mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. It's interesting that when he writes to the Corinthians, Paul's not instructing them to avoid contact with unbelievers, the outside. But Paul always has told us to live amongst them in such a way as to reveal Christ to unbelievers, to reveal Christ to the world around us. It was even Jesus who said in Matthew 5, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It's good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. But you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. In 1 Peter 2, 9-12, we read, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Scripture is clear. The Christian must live in the world, must rub shoulders with the world in order to be a witness to the rest of it. But what a Christian cannot do is participate with the world in sin. We are to be in the world. We are to be unlike the world, living out the light of Christ as lights in a dark place. Listen to what Paul writes to the Ephesians. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk, coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or imper person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. 
For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all these things become visible when they're exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. And for this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul does not want the Corinthians to keep the church out of the world, but he wants to keep the world out of the church. And he means that those who profess to be saved must, like li- must live like those who are saved. A person should not be embraced as a believer whose profession and practice is a literal contradiction. And really, what he's saying is that the Corinthians are not to associate with a person claiming to be a Christian who simply just continues unapologetically to live in sin. And finally, Paul ends with this last expression. He says, remove the wicked man from amongst yourselves. It's virtually a quotation from Deuteronomy 17 from the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. That statement is actually similar to what is found elsewhere in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 24, for example. what, What Paul calls for in the New Testament church actually is not significantly different than what Moses communicated to the nation of Israel, when you think about it. Because after all, in the Old Testament, God dwelt in the midst of their people. Remember that? And thus the Israelites were required to remove sin and, and sinners from their midst. In the New Testament, Paul informed the Corinthians that God now indwells in his temple, the church. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 4. Paul's word now in 1 Corinthians 5 becomes very sobering. Because they're meant to be. He's already written, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that's what you are. There is something something special about the church, and now the Corinthians are reminded of their duty to play a part in this process by removing sin from their midst, because a holy God dwells within us. This is not an easy passage to preach. I always get the hard ones. I don't know why, but our text raises a number of issues for us today. There are three things that this chapter is not saying, though. Paul is not talking about secret, private, debatable sins, as I would call them. He's talking about something that is public and even scandalous. The scriptural commands are broken in ways that everybody knew what was happening. It was beyond dispute. Everybody knew what was going on. Secondly, he's not talking about judging those who are not Christians. This has nothing to do with the world. He's not talking to people outside the church. We're not looking at someone and saying, well, look at their behavior. Uh, They should fit in with how we think and how we, we should live. Instead, he's talking about those within the church. Those who say we are Christians, we are brothers and sisters. Those who have said publicly that they wish to live their lives for Jesus, they've probably already been baptized. We're measuring them against the standards that they've chosen for themselves. 
And finally, he's not calling the church to condemn anyone. Let's remember what the purpose of this discipline is. It's not to write them off. It's actually to win people back. The aim is restoration. And so when it comes right down to it as a church, I don't think we can think of sin as a joke. Remember, there were two problems in the church in Corinth. The first is the behavior of this individual. The second was the response as a church as a whole, which was to be proud of what was going on. You know, we mustn't take something that God clearly says is wrong and make a joke out of it. You know, be rather proud at our capacity to look how tolerant we are. Also, I don't think we can think that sin doesn't matter. We're Christians who have been rescued by the Lord Jesus from sin, from death, and hell itself. And it wasn't just the blood of a lamb that did that. It was what Paul calls elsewhere God's own blood. We cannot just live our old ways if nothing has changed. But we have become aware of sin in our lives, and I have to say that matters immensely. We need to seek God's help to deal with it, and it matters so much to God that he actually let his own son to die to deal with our sin. And also, we can't think that sin is purely private. This, this chapter holds out a way that we can care for each other. But there are two possible dangers here. I think one is to be overly inappropriately nosy and interfering. We know some of those people. And the other danger is to simply assume that what somebody else does is that it's their business and it's, it's not really mine. See, on that scale, I suspect that most of us are by temperament more likely to make the second mistake. We want to just turn our heads and not deal with anything there. It's just easier. Yet, some of us need a warning not to be interfering busybodies. But most of us need encouraging to take care of our Christian brothers and sisters to have conversations, to get involved, to talk, to ask questions, not to gossip, not to stand back, but to come alongside one another in the loving friendship and a gentle, um, being able to gently conf confront if need be or to challenge, to pray where, you know, what needs to be done because sin is surely not purely a private matter. You know, if I persist in a particular sin, the damage works itself out corporately when you think about it. And that sin is like yeast. It spreads. It affects the whole life of the church. You know, if a brother or sister in your family was about to make a disastrous move, I think you would obviously want to step out and try to stop them. And if your relationship is strong enough that you can bring up a subject, it should be the same in the church family. Because we're family, and we need to care for each other. But that only works when we have the relationships and the trust, where we know each other. And Paul says basically that people who don't know Jesus and didn't even follow Jesus will look at what's going on at the church, and they'll say, you know, even I know even I know what's going on in there is wrong, and if being a Christian means allowing that to go on, then I want no part of this Jesus thing. And friends, it's absolutely no different today. When our world hears believers speaking viciously 
about other believers today, when our world sees believers mistreating other believers today, when our world sees followers of Christ living a life of self-centeredness, of pride, of mean-spiritedness, of drunkenness, of sexual immorality, when our world sees Christians shamelessly and persistently living in ways that we say are wrong, we are doing real damage to the kingdom of God and our witness in the world. And so Paul calls us to do something about it when these situations arise. So as Christians, we must always guard against the thinking that we are wiser and more pious than God and his word. You know, when I've touched on this passage, when I've taught on it, I've had a lot of strong reactions from people. Some have objected that to react in this way in the way of breaking off a relationship with someone seems so unchristian like they they get bent out of shape and yet as we see in this passage sometimes it's the most loving thing to do it's loving for the person concerned and loving for the rest of the congregation to simply call for repentance without taking any practical steps is naive it's unloving and eventually it's destructive But we have to do it. Because in our desperate attempts today to try to get people to join our churches, in our quick desire to model unconditional love of Jesus in a culture that's so quick to shout, don't judge me, it's easy for us to shy away from the biblical responsibility of John 7.24 that says, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. In other words, you got to get deep. It's not about the outside. It's about what's going on in a person's heart. I think the church has bought into the lie that true discipline is shooting our wounded. I've heard that. I've seen that. I've read that. I think we've made a mockery out of biblical restoration. You know, we're more worried about making ministry. We're not worried about healthy individuals. We're not worried about healthy marriages or healthy families, which actually should be our goal. The fact of the matter is, is integrity matters. No, we don't need legalistic, pharisaical standards. It's not about the beat or the drums or the clothes that we're wearing. It's about the attitude of the heart and how we're living out the scriptures. We have to have standards. And rediscovering and implementing those standards is a worthy goal, especially in a culture increasingly bent on moral relativism and and shades of gray, so to speak. Appropriate, properly applied discipline is foundational to our spiritual growth and development. However, for us leaders in the 21st century, it's such a delicate process filled with multiple challenges, and I know that personally. And since the culture around us is one of tolerance and acceptance, any attempt to try to exert any spiritual authority or discipline in a person's life can be seen as inappropriate. It seems as meddling, you're controlled, this is a cult. The phrase, don't judge me, has become this mantra for a generation of people that don't want to be told that they're wrong, what they're doing is wrong, contrary to Scripture. And when people don't want to be held accountable, their immediate response is to quote a biblical passage. Go figure that. Jesus said, don't judge or you too will be judged. 
And it's easy to get confused on the subject and erroneously think that he was encouraging non-engagement with the issues of sin and error and compromise. But when you study that passage of Scripture, nothing could be further from the truth. Sorry, I'm passionate about this. Let me say that churches have to take great care against the abuses of discipline because it's out there. And church discipline can be abused in a number of ways. And I think Christians and believers need to be leery of churches where their leaders are paying, playing favorites. Where you only punish those who disagree with you or maybe the leaders have a temper or they use the silent treatment. Or the leaders always have to have the last word or they can never be wrong. Or they emphasize external conformity. Or maybe they're consistently dogmatic on both the big and the small issues, they, or they have no accountability themselves, or they have difficulty giving authority to others and generally need control or possessing an unbalanced, unbiblical concept of authority. And I think one of the main abuses of church discipline is actually missing all the steps of confrontation and moving straight to expulsion and public naming, or in some cases, public shaming. And I think the key to this is that it starts with relationship. It starts with the conversation that takes place first. A private one-on-one -on -one conversation time. A time of understanding. A time of caring. A time of discourse must always precede any discipline. And the authority of church leaders is, when you think about it, it's primarily a relational authority. And despite God's backing and anointing on our lives, people will only submit to us, people will only submit to me as their pastor if they choose to. I can't force you, I can't control you. And, and that kind of knowledge actually paralyzes some leaders who see the need to address certain area, areas, but they fear if they do, the person will simply drift off and, like I said earlier, they'll just go to another church, somebody else's ministry. They could take their family with them, take their friends with them. They could say what they want. And many times the leader is just left standing there going, what am I to do? And I think the reluctance to practice church discipline really can also, when you look at it from a leader perspective, can stem from our own areas of unresolved sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we'll get to that, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. You know, if we've been slack in judging ourselves, maybe I feel hypocritical to judge somebody else. Maybe I don't feel I should say anything because they could look at me and say, what's that big lumber in your eye? These are all challenges. And despite these challenges, however, we must not shirk from our responsibility to apply appropriate church discipline. And to do so is to foster, foster what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. In his classic statement, this is what he said. He said, cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. All that to say is that God takes sin seriously. That's why the cross of Calvary was necessary. And God took our sins so seriously that he sent his son to die in our place, to suffer the punishment for our sins. And the good news of the gospel is that while God takes our sins seriously and while our sin must be judged, 
He has judged our sins in Jesus. And to enter into his forgiveness, all we need to do is receive the gift of salvation which God has offered to us by faith in his Son. And when we see how seriously God has taken our sin, we see how serious we also must be about sin as well. The church needs discipline. It does. We, you and I, all need discipline in our own spiritual walk. And discipline isn't always the thought of, thought of in positive light, but it's necessary for the church. And I think our love-hate relationship with, with the word discipline comes from knowing that discipline is good for us. It's just really hard for us to practice. And sometimes it's actually painful. And so in the church, as Paul writes... Disciples need discipline to learn to grow to follow Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for the love and commitment and devotion and discipline of all those who have gone before us and have brought the church to where it is today. I thank you for those who have sacrificed blood, sweat, and tears for the sake of Jesus Christ. Help us to be inspired by those who have modeled a life of faith and devotion to you. Help us to be faithful ourselves so that our character may grow strong and be a model for others. Give us personal strength so that each of us may become more and more like Jesus in every way. And give us faith as a community so that we may be faithful to the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ and to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Help us, God, to have the discipline and the fortitude to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses and to follow you. And may Jesus be honored in our lives. Amen. All right, Soul Sanctuary, may you open your eyes that you may see the needs of others. May you open your ears that you would hear their cries. May you open your heart so that they need not be without assistance and support in times of hardship and distress. Soul Sanctuary, do not be afraid to defend the weak because of the anger of the strong. So sanctuary, do not be afraid to defend the poor because of the anger of the rich. And may the Father show you where love and hope and faith are needed and use you to bring them to those places. Now go. Listen to the voice of the Lord and follow wherever it leads. And may God be with you and speak through you. May Jesus Christ be one with you and raise you to life and may the Holy Spirit dwell within you and make you holy. Now go in peace and serve the Lord and live the church. And we'll see you later this week.